Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Maureen Farrell, the co-author of the best-selling book, The Cult of We, the definitive inside story of WeWork, Adam Newman, and the great startup delusion. Maureen is a reporter that covers capital markets and IPOs at the Wall Street Journal, where she has worked since 2013. She previously worked at CNN, Forbes, Deadwire, and Merger Market. In this podcast, we talk about the implications, magnified by WeWork, of concepts such as growth at all costs, valuation over product, the cult of the founder, pre-exit carve-outs or cash-outs, corporate purpose, mission statements, co-opted mantras of sustainability and ESG, the role of gatekeepers, including the board of directors, dual-class shares, and the IPO process. We end with Adam Newman's ouster from WeWork, plus a series of rapid-fire questions. If you like this show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Maureen, it is such a pleasure to have you in this podcast. I can't tell you how much I enjoyed your book. I mean, it was really a riveting read. Of course, we all knew about WeWork and the case. It's it's kind of an iconic case of startup and as you as you wrote, great startup delusion, but also the amount of detail that you have in the book and the amount of particularly detail on corporate governance is incredible. And this is what I would love to explore with you in this podcast, which is really focused on corporate governance, on the board work, and what happens behind the scenes. And there are many things, many things that I think are uh, worth discussing. But first, let's talk about you and and tell us a little bit, you know, where'd you grow up? And we'll we'll talk about your background, and then we'll dig into the... uh, Sure. Um, Well, thanks. First of all, thanks for reading the book. I'm so glad you enjoyed it. And um, thank you. Thanks for having me on. It's great, great to have a chance to talk to you on this forum. Um, I grew up on Long Island, uh, right out to about 45 minutes outside of the city. I now live not too far away. I live in Brooklyn. And um, yeah, I always was very interested in journalism. So and started not not too long after college. And then you've been working as a reporter for over a decade in different, I see M&A and bankruptcy, and now you're in the Wall Street Journal and you've been covering IPOs. And, and so you're very, very involved in this world. Let me ask you, what made you focus on this particular case? Oh, of so yeah, I've been at the Journal for almost eight years and I took over the IPO beat in 2016. And through that beat, I guess it was interesting when I first started it, there were almost no IPOs. It was this moment where uh, mm. you know tech firms were getting bigger and bigger, the Ubers, the Airbnbs. Mm. No one wanted to go public. There was so much private capital. So what was the IPO beat wound up just by necessity? I wound up focusing a lot more on the private markets and watching the entrance of SoftBank, the entrance of even Saudi Arabia's sovereign wealth fund that right. helped create this big giant vision mm-hmm. fund. Um, but always since 2016, when I took over the beat, there was just a small cohort of companies that were the most interesting that I probably spent the most time focusing on, like Uber, Airbnb, Lyft. And we worked mm-hmm. with one of them. It was definitely part of this cohort, but you just always heard things that were a little mm-hmm. crazier <laughs> about WeWork, a little more confusing a lot of crazy stories about Adam Newman. So it was just always, always high on my radar. And, um, you know, then came this IPO in 2019, the IPO that wasn't. I think it's fascinating. One of the things, and we can start focusing on the governance side by saying it's like the quintessential case of growth at all costs, right? This is like one of the most interesting cases of a company that was focused on valuation above product. Uh, why don't we talk about that? Uh, I think it is interesting to think about growth at all costs. Yeah, I think that's such a great point that you bring up. And I think it is really the driver of this business and sort of what became of it what and what made it so, um, what could have been probably a smaller business, but could have been a stable, but it, it sort of really led to its right. instability. And yeah, I think it was growth at all costs. and 
knowing that with growth came higher and higher and higher valuations. And Adam Newman, the CEO and co-founder, knew so well that that is really what drove so much else. So everything, and it became more and more dramatic as time went on, was put towards growing revenue. But then you look underneath the hood of that and losses were growing just as quickly. Yeah, and I saw, and, and may, I'm not sure if this number is right, but he he raised about $10 billion over nine years. So it's a remarkable story of one of the most prolific fundraisers out there. And it's incredible because at each stage, he was able to get the top investors, you know, in the venture capital. Then he had like the investment banks. Then he had the mutual funds. Then he had international and sovereign wealth funds. And it is an incredible story. But one thing that I think is important that we cover is this idea of the cult of the founder, right? Your, your book is, is entitled The Cult of We. And it plays with this idea of the cult of the founder, which is something that people in Silicon Valley have talked for a long time. But also, this story to me reflects as well a bit of a tension between the Silicon Valley ethos and Wall Street ethos. Ironically, uh, WeWork is a New York-based company, uh, but was trying to be a tech company. And Adam Newman very thoughtfully tried to position the company as a tech company and try to borrow a lot of the Silicon Valley language. And one issue here is, is interesting. We have seen many governance excesses from founders who have the ability to take control of the companies. But there is another narrative that people miss, which is, remember, before VCs were founder-friendly, a lot of VCs would take over the companies and you would have excesses from investors. So it's an interesting, this is a quintessential case of a founder gone Ori that we've seen and then makes the headlines, which is Adam Newman at WeWork or Travis at Uber or Theranos with Elizabeth Holmes, which is kind of a fraud case. But uh, I think it's an interesting ideological position between Silicon Valley and Wall Street. Oh, I think that's it's such a another like really great point. And I think it is it essentially drives this whole story as the cult of the founder in general. That's like had had we not been living in this age, none of this would have happened. He wouldn't I mean it's probably unlikely he could have raised as much money, but much nor it been able to do all the things he did, many of many of which were very detrimental to the company in terms of what Adam Newman took out for himself versus the company. And yeah. That is incredible. I mean, one of the big takeaways of the book is I could not believe you write that I think $500 million he took out pre-exit in different carve-outs, in different cash-out payments, in the different fundraising, all the way from the Series A, B, C, D, $500 million. I mean, let's talk about incentives and conflicts of interest. Mm -hmm. It's It was unbelievable. I mean... What, right before the IPO, we started hearing that from, it, it took us a while to figure it out. My co-author, Elliot Brown, and I were hearing from certain people who knew, they were saying, you know, it is absolutely horrifying and, and terrifying how much Adam Newman has taken out of this company. And you mentioned all the money, you know, the shares in which he sold and cashing out at each step of the way, Oftentimes when other people couldn't at the right. same time, or he would do it at a higher valuation for whatever reason, you know, there were, there were reasons, but it's kind of crazy. Um, but then he also is taking more and more loans out. That to me is also insane because mm -hmm. there you see the incentives of the banks. I mean, this is a story, by the way, this is like a complete Silicon Valley plus Wall Street coalition. Because the role of the banks, J.P. Morgan, Goldman Sachs, even Jeffries, a lot of banks were involved. The, he had, at some point, also like $500 million in borrowing from the banks. And, and he was expecting the IPO to get, I think, $6 billion in loans if he raised $3 billion in equity. And that is a story that I don't think I've seen much here in Silicon Valley. Maybe I'm wrong, right? Like, you, you would know probably more than me. But talk about... Conflicts again. I mean, it's rife with conflicts of interest and it's rife with all the incentives gone wrong. Some VCs will say it's okay to maybe carve out some money in the fundraising if you want the founders to have some liquidity and, uh, you know, maybe to pay for the homes or, or schools or something. But a carve out of such, you know, $500 million, that is incredible. 
Oh, completely incredible. And yes, I, I mean, we've heard that justification. I mean, it makes sense, especially as companies are going public later and later. There's some amount of money. I mean, you hear VC say that you don't want you don't want founders to be distracted for like any lack of, um, you know, to for it to be a problem in any way. But I mean, 500 million, eight houses, like he was doing ridiculous things with this money. I mean, his staff alone. And and exactly like you said, the banks, I mean, the loans taking out, he would, he would tell people that um, it was, he must be so optimistic about the future of the company to like borrow money at the valuation which I mean, at the end of the day, the real question is, why does anyone need a billion dollars? And if you're taking it out, what does it say about your commitment to the future if you're taking that all out right then? And we heard that, I mean, we heard people, especially in 2019, were really getting worried about this. And that's how we started to piece it together. And we, Elliot and I put out a piece in the summer of 2019. Um, but it was, it was interesting when we put out the piece, we were, we were working on it for so long and trying to get the details and firm them up. And it was, we wound up getting some pushback from the company that we said he, it was more than 700 million. We had mm-hmm. heard it was more than a billion, mm-hmm. but the response, um, and ultimately it was more than a billion. Um, mm-hmm. But in terms of what we felt comfortable publishing, we went with 700 million and between stock sales and loans and when we saw the response, we were, I mean, people were horrified. I, I mean, I've almost never gotten so many emails in response to a story. And yeah, I mean, it it's, raises every question, every red flag, and it's completely wild that, I mean, you have this very sophisticated board of directors. You have, I mean, this is a huge amount of money, even for a bank like JP Morgan, Credit Suisse, and UBS were the other um lenders to him on these personal loans. I mean, yeah. How do you justify that? No, it, it is amazing. And and yeah, it, it is a case where if you see the perks that he took out, right, the private jet and, you know, all the different trips and luxury lifestyle. I, I mean, it is quite a book to read about this lifestyle. Another thing that was interesting was you described the We Holdings LLC, which is the ownership structure that he had with his co-founder, it was interesting to me to learn that you know they had this agreement that maybe his co-founder would get an upfront amount of money, but if they raised more of the valuation of the company raised at a certain level, Adam Newman would, would get up to 83% of the company. So he was really driven and incented to kind of grow the valuation as well. He would have a higher piece of the pie. And, and I think that's an arrangement that is novel, right? Typically, mm-hmm. when you have co-founders, they just split the equity. But in this case... From the beginning, they had this arrangement where there was kind of a, a, a an, an incentive to grow from one. Adam Newman was clearly going to grow the valuation because of that. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, it's very. It was very interesting to hear that. It took us a while to kind of figure out exactly what the breakdown was and why. I mean, it's it's mm-hmm. sort of uh, mystifying as to why his co-founder would let him do that. But our understanding is, um, you know, his his co-founder pretty quickly took more and more of a backseat. I mean, it seems like from the beginning, they joined forces. Miguel McKelvey, the co-founder, was an architect by training. If you really look at the buildings, in terms of the sort of innovations around WeWork, co-working spaces existed all over by that point. Uh, No one had obviously made anything as big as what Adam and Miguel were going to make. But um, Miguel was the one, he sort of came up with these glass partitions, mm-hmm. bringing light in. A lot of the aesthetic around WeWork was really his vision. Um, but he quickly, Adam was obsessed with making it bigger and bigger. And it sounded like he just didn't want to stand in the way and was like, if we get to a certain point, this is more than I ever could have imagined. <laughs> right. He didn't want to hold him back from taking big gambles, it seemed like. So yeah, they, they made that. And it just, yeah, it was one more incentive for Adam to grow and grow and grow. And, and it seemed like it kind of also kept tensions at bay between mm-hmm. them. So mm-hmm. yeah, no, it is. I, I think this was eye opening for me. I was like, huh, that's interesting that they set the terms from the beginning with a flexible arrangement. Uh, another thing that you write that I think is is very classic of the times is this idea that they are like a uh, 
purpose company uh, and, and to elevate the world's consciousness. Uh, and they they co-opt this kind of term, which is, it takes me to a lot of what's happening now with ESG, right? Environmental mm-hmm. social governance and sustainability. Like how much of it is real? Like if we, if we take away all the blah, blah from Adam Newman, right? What he was trying to position WeWork was a sustainable green company that would solve many of the environmental issues, right? Remember his first company was Green Desk, like the ethos or the origin was that, and he probably sold that a lot. In the market today, I mean, you will know the numbers, there are trillions of dollars of investment going into ESG environmental issues. This is a little bit of a red flag too, right? Like how much you can use this terminology and it's all fluff. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, you see it, whether it's ESG or, I mean, Facebook or Google, right? Like, I mean, it's mm-hmm. it's been part of the ethos of Silicon Valley for so long. What, what was it like? Do no harm with Google. Um, right, right. And I mean, it's, it's interesting. One of the things we point out is like, you don't hear people saying that they're going to choose like uh, right out of college, like JP Morgan versus Goldman Sachs mm-hmm. versus Morgan Stanley, because one has more of a commitment to, <laughs> you know, the environment or it's right, like saving right. the world. Where, but in Silicon Valley, that it does really seem like a, a true recruitment tool. But the question is, you know, what's, what is behind this? The missions sound great, right. but what do they really mean? And we work like everything else they did, like took that to the extreme. I mean, they, he made the most grandiose pronouncements about what this was going to do. I mean, we quote this at some point, but it's, I mean, I've listened to this maybe like a dozen times. They had these summer camps every mm-hmm. summer. And the last one, I think it was in 2018, the final one they had, it was at this huge um, park in uh, outside of London. And he and his wife are on stage and they talk about how they're going to solve the world's problems. And right. his wife starts crying about the problem of orphans in the world and Adam Newman's like, well, we're going to help all the orphans. Like, we're going to save them. And, we're, you know, he was telling people they were going to, he was going to solve world, uh, Middle East peace. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. It would be the Middle East peace agreement would be signed in a WeWork. Um, so, yeah. Yeah, it, the, 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 the grandiosity of all. I mean, I suppose I, I was separating in my mind the purpose side, which is being a Silicon Valley thing, like the mission statement. Uh, versus the environmental side, which is now gathering so much steam, even in Wall Street, right? The pure, Mm -hmm. which is kind of ESG-like, right? But if you put it all together, everyone's trying to tap into this. But in your book, the the spirituality that they try to put into the company, this idea that we work with a family, right? Mm-hmm. is it, a really interesting idea. We, uh, I don't know if you read uh, the CEO of Shopify wrote this letter uh, saying, hey, we are not a family. We are a company. Oh. And, 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 and that's another corporate go- governance debate, right, is the purpose of the company. You know, there's a lot of Coinbase, for example, the CEO wrote a letter saying, mm-hmm. hey, we're not going to get into politics, right? So there, there are purpose issues. And, and, you know, what is the purpose of the company, right? That's one side. But I think, Obviously, they Adam Newman pushed that to the extreme, but the other side is environmental, green, ESG, which is tapping into a whole pool of money that people want these days. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I think that's an interesting dichotomy and, and that he had both set to the max. But let's talk about the role of gatekeepers. So this, to me, is, is a really interesting uh, side. So you had... Very uh, big uh, venture capital investor, benchmark, be the Series A investor. Then you had mutual funds come in, right? So typically, public investors now going into Silicon Valley, investing in private companies. uh, And, and, you know, Fidelity and T. Rob Price put, you know, the Series C and the Series B. Uh, That, to me, was a surprise to see the numbers of how much public investors are going into private companies, which I suppose it's been happening in the last five years, but the level of competition among them, the way you describe it is, hey, they put, we uh, we don't care about valuation. I mean, one valued 5 billion, the other one valued 10 billion and was six months later. Oh, that that was, I mean, at the time it was wild. Um, to see it, but then to kind of hear the backstory. And, um, and I mean, I felt like this, uh, so many steps of the way in terms of fundraising, but you maybe, I mean, we call this the chapter on it, like fun, uh, like a FOMO basically. Yeah. FOMO, and it, exactly. Literally. I mean, 
it was that. And Adam Newman was absolutely brilliant on playing on this fear of missing out among all investors. But yes, uh, Fidelity looked at uh, WeWork when it was going after a $5 billion round. People there thought it was crazy, passed on it. They were skeptical of Adam. They were very skeptical that it could ever be a, a tech company that they were trying to pitch it as. They said, you know, by all accounts, the numbers make it look like a real estate company. These projections look crazy. Six months later, so but T. Rowe Price invests and in um, one of the uh, people he now has his own fund, but Henry Ellenbogen was an investor there. And he was one of the first people to get into the private markets. They sort of mm-hmm. were, he, he led T. Rowe there and, you know, Facebook was going public, you know, historically you would have been able to get into Facebook, maybe as a $5 billion sure. company, it went public so much later. And so Henry really started getting into these companies and was doing exceptionally well on some big mm-hmm. companies like Twitter. Mm-hmm. He got in early. Um, so they, yeah, they sort of expanded their charters to go after private companies. But yeah, so Henry Ellenbogen was sort of like the, the starter of this. His uh, rival over at Fidelity, his name was Gavin Baker, mm-hmm. saw that Henry Ellenbogen had gotten in at $5 billion, didn't know why he didn't see it, even though his uh, some other people on his team had passed on it. But then six months later, he jumps in at $10 billion, even as analysts inside Fidelity were still saying, hey, at $5 billion, this didn't make sense. It really mm-hmm. doesn't make sense now at $10 billion. And they just went for it anyway. And and with each, I mean, you talk about the gatekeepers, it's, you know, there's, there are firms like these, like Fidelity, T. Rowe Price, the banks, all at Benchmark, you think are gatekeepers, but they're also, they have this stamp of approval. I mean, exactly. Yeah. When you're, and Adam Newman was masterful at so many things in terms of fundraising, but especially at that, I mean, leveraging the name T. Rowe Price to get interest from other people and, you know, just say, oh, why, how could there be red flags or risks? Why would these people invest in us? I mean, that's what your book really shows is you think that companies, that the people will validate you, right? And Mm -hmm. he had every validation from the very beginning. I mean, I I suppose Benchmark coming in a hundred million dollars, then everyone else was following, you know, JP Morgan. And then, and then you had T. Rowe Price and, and Fidelity and so people stop doing due diligence. And, you know, if you think about in a different way, the story of Theranos, it's the same thing. Early investor, you know, very well known. And then everybody puts in the money. They don't even look at the financials and and everybody. But this case of WeWork is like, I mean, we're talking at the top of the top. I mean, Jamie Dimon is involved like personally. And you have all the banks and, the, you know, you when you discuss the IPO and you have the CEOs of NASDAQ, of New York Stock Exchange. I mean, it's really the who's who. So it just shows you that what's going on out there in the market. We don't know what's real and what isn't, right? Uh, and and when you talk about SoftBank and Masayoshi Son, wow! I mean, that is somebody who really put fire into this. And he was saying that he was he wasn't crazy enough. And he, if ten billion dollars was uh, a big valuation, he came into fifteen billion, and then he had an idea to put in, you know, even more, like forty-seven billion. It it puts him in a very bad light. This idea that you could just make champions, they could pour money, and that you will just push over. And he would invest in 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 minutes. You say that when he meets in New York with with Adam Newman, they have a cab ride or something or in a limousine for fifteen minutes, and he he, he committed four billion dollars. It's un- it's unbelievable. I mean, that was one of the things I think while reporting the story is, um, you know, yeah, he Massa would go out and tell people, oh, I, I think he said this publicly a 12 minute tour and Adam said this and I decided to invest more than 4 billion and we work or, and then it, or the 45 minute cab ride, which was up to Trump tower, <laughs> which we were yeah. excited to learn. <laughs> yeah. um, but you, it seemed like some of those things seem, Oh, wow. That was crazy. I'm sure there's more to the story. And there was, and there wasn't, I mean, it mm-hmm. was really, yeah. he went on this brief tour. They got out of a taxi. They sketched out a map of the world and talked about during this uh, ride to Trump Tower of how they were going to dominate the world. And he, he promised $4 billion. And Adam walks out of a car and has, has a piece of paper in, in hand that he goes back to WeWork with, freaking out. Um, yeah, there, and then there was due diligence after that. 
Mm-hmm. Yet it didn't really matter. I mean, it didn't really matter what they found out, and there yeah, was you, skepticism. You, you, you even write that some of the junior people in the bank didn't like it at all. But at the end, Massa's what he wanted, he gets. And and at at many of these firms, you, you write that a lot of the analysts kind of said it didn't make sense. But it's the decision makers that say, "Hey, we're going to do this deal no matter what." Exactly. And they're just, you know, one after another, just completely smitten with Adam Newman and are willing to ignore so many red flags because he's painted this vision of what he's going to accomplish and they can't really see past what he tells them. I mean, one of the things we just kind of like a shorthand for thinking about Adam throughout the book as we were writing it was like really seeing him as a magician. It was all like Mm -hmm. sleight of hand and, um, you know, it would be he'd move things around and you just kind of follow follow what he says. And uh, I think it was it was just kind of how how he worked. Um, yeah, and, and, and you write in the book that he's he's like the best salesman that people have ever seen. I mean, credit to him. I mean, credit to a lot of these founders that are able to do this to very, very, very sophisticated people. I mean, he was navigating the most sophisticated people in Silicon Valley and in, in Wall Street. Although it's interesting, in Silicon Valley, you do talk about his meeting with Elon Musk, with Brian <laughs> Chesky and, and uh, from Airbnb, and they they kind of called his bluff, right? Like they said, no, like he's full of it. Um, but let's talk about, uh, about the board. I, I think this is a really interesting part of the story. So let, let's talk about who they were. So you had Dunleavy, who is uh, the benchmark partner, then you had uh, Langman, who who was a private equity investor, but a friend, really. They, they were the initial board members. Uh, then you had Frankfurt, who was the CEO of Coach, right? The ex-CEO of Coach. And then you had uh, Schwartz, uh, who was a Goldman Sachs person, also on the board of SoftBank. Uh, Zhao, who came in later as a Chinese investor. Uh, and, and Fisher, uh, who is a SoftBank uh, director as well. To me, this is a great story for board members. And, and this podcast is really targeted to board members. You would think that the board would have a lot of relevance and sway over uh, Adam Newman, but in this case, it was really an ineffectual board. Like they basically signed off on all the crazy stuff, the private jets, the luxury, conflicted transactions where he would buy buildings and lease them to the company, the trademark where he leases the name and the company pays. I mean, what do you make out of the board of this company? I mean, that feels like one of the most unbelievable um, parts of this whole story. As you said, I mean, you, you ticked off the board members. They're like a real, uh, theoretically, very impressive mix of people and with with amazing backgrounds. Yet, it just seems like they were just, they, you know, kowtowed to him at every mm-hmm. step of the way. And I mean, you'd hear there'd be some like internal dissent on things, whether it was his private buying a private jet, which barely any private company venture backed has ever had one. I mean, and it's crazy. You're a private company, you buy a $65 million jet and the guy's going to Costa Rica, going to <laughs> twice you know, in one week, right before twice the IPO. In a week in the IPO. I mean, it is, it is, you can't make it up. You it's just un- can't make it up. And I mean, one of the things, so yeah, and, and they would say, oh, they'd grumble about it. But I mean, every piece, and we've seen board minutes, um, lots of them, they would vote unanimously for all these things, even if they said, um, you know, they would say, oh, this isn't a good idea. But then it said, you know, the question was, even, even they would, the talk was about founder control. They had given him these like potent super voting shares. So in theory, Adam right. Newman could like had enough power to override the board, which the board had handed him early on, including Stunley from Benchmark. But still, you know, and so in theory, he could have also, uh, you know, had the power to, to fire, fire the whole board. Yeah. But I mean, these are the biggest, like some of the mm-hmm. most impressive investors, um, in the world, if he fired the board or threatened to, you have to think that would have been really detrimental to the company. So, I mean, it just seems incredible that they just handed over all their power to him and weren't willing to stand up to him. I still almost don't know what to make of it. But speaking of the board, I mean, one of the things that this is while we were still reporting for the journal before we had even um, left just for the book leave, 
someone told us, oh, in the lead up to the IPO, Adam missed like a board meeting or two. So we started digging into it. We were like, wow, that, this is going to be crazy to find out. Like you're preparing for an IPO and, and the CEO and chairman can't even show up for the board meeting. It turns out the more we dug, he barely went to any board meetings. So it's like, I mean, just like, how does the board... And then, oh, and then we heard someone, one of the board members, Stephen Langman, uh, we heard the story that he eventually flipped out at Adam and said, like, you have to show up. We're horrified. And we tried to figure piece together what that date was. <laughs> the date was like September 2019, like wow. very shortly before this. I, you know, that was, it was very clear this whole IPO was going to blow up. But you know, as shocking as the, your reporting and your discovery of all of this is, it's not such a novel thing, right? A lot of these founders in Silicon Valley have dual class shares. I mean, I think you've also reported that mm-hmm. on many other companies, right? Like. Every major tech company since Google's IPO in 2004 have used dual-class shares in some way to take control. And, and, and you describe in your book this fight of the 20-to-1 vote, right? Which, you know, typically the, the, the rule of thumb was really 10-to-1, which is what Google had and what Facebook has. But I always say these terms are very specific to each company. You have to really dig in because sometimes like Facebook, he has voting agreements with others. So they will hand them over their proxy. So their power will vary depending on each company. And these you have to dig in the S1 or the terms of the, of the power. But it, it's really interesting because it's not that uncommon. And even Adam Newman was saying, hey, other companies have it, mm-hmm. you know, uh, and he was pointing to Lyft and was pointing to Snapchat that Snapchat, when they did the IPO, you know this, had uh, zero votes to the public shareholders, right? Mm-hmm. So they had 90% of the voting control of a company. So I'm sure Adam Newman at that point said, who cares? I mean, everybody, Google has it, uh, Facebook has it. Why am I so different? So as shocking as this, the, the voting control may be, it's not that uncommon. What I think is interesting in your reporting is that the board was just like a figurehead and they weren't doing much and they they were all happy to be on the ride and they just wanted to, here's one thing one good takeaway they just wanted to have an ipo to clean up all the governance and they mm-hmm. said you know what we can't control him but the market will control him and let's push for the ipo which is a very great takeaway is one way to clean up <laughs> governance of a private company is to go public that's something that i think is very interesting I think it's an interesting thing too, because it, it's in, it's interesting also in in terms of the trajectory of this company. It was something that they were saying, um, you know, especially senior management and others, as early as 2015, 2016, they thought, okay, you know, he's pretty much tapped out the whole world for capital at that point. Um, you know, he got the mutual, he got the wealth management arms of banks, mutual funds. When it seemed like there was no one else to raise money from, he went to China and he secured a big round there. And it was like, who's left? Okay, he's going to have to go to the public markets. The public markets will do all the things we're scared to do. And then Masa came in and just fueled the fire. And then yet again in 2019, that was the thinking. And it's an interesting takeaway. I mean, it's kind of uh, shocking or maybe like horrifying in some ways that these people can't don't think they can like the whether it's the board or others don't think they can stand up to a founder and they they want public shareholders to take it over but it did it especially felt like that when you say you know he's missing board meetings he's not going it's like just get this thing it felt like every step of the way especially in 2019 was like let's do whatever it takes to just like push this out the door and then we're all right. going to be fine and let public investors handle right. it. I mean, it's, right. it's pretty like a dark well, way of... I, yeah, yeah and, I, and I think it's a fascinating governance story because it's the balance of power. Who makes mm-hmm. the decisions, right? And at one, you have the founders, then you have the investors. And then once you go public, you have another area, which are activist investors. You see many companies, including SoftBank, being subject of an activist investor, right? So... This is complex, right? Like, how do you navigate the power structures and the influence and of you know, mutual investors and everybody's trying to jockey in their influence and it's us, you know, as the large, you know, BlackRock and Fidelity and Vanguard and State Street. That's the mantra of the public market. So when they see these private companies go public, there's a big 
intellectual or cultural fight over who makes the decisions, what's the right thing to do. And in Silicon Valley, it's still very founder-driven, right? Mm -hmm. People are okay here giving the power to like a Zuckerberg. Well, okay. I mean, <laughs> there's a lot of litigation around this, but but that's been a a, a big issue is who makes the decisions. And I think in, in, your, in, in the case of WeWork, this board was just, you know, caving to every single demand and, and, and all for growth and all for an exit. And it just shows you that everybody, even investment banks, when they say, well, we'll, we'll give you all these loans, but the fees was, you know, $200 million just to do this. I mean, it's a, it's a big, huge money grab at the end of the day. Exactly. It's all like sort of warped incentives. And I mean, it's interesting, like, as you said, like just how much the, um, in Silicon Valley, it shifted. I mean, you almost never see, and this hasn't changed after WeWork, really, a company that's founder-controlled go public without super voting shares right now. It's just, and then you talk about activist investors, how do they, they don't come in to, uh, or they don't really have any power to make well, it, any changes. That was the original argument. It, why mm-hmm. have founders? And I remember Mark Andreessen saying back in 2012, is if you go public with a single stock in this environment, you are chum in the water. So remember in, in the early 2000s, the activists had a lot of campaigns. And, and it's interesting because if you look at the prior generation of tech companies, the Apples, the Amazons, mm-hmm. the Microsoft, they don't have dual cloud. Exactly. It's, it's, it's really kind of the next generation. So I think it's an unsettled question, right? You can see arguments on both ends and there are excesses and it's these type of excesses that show what's wrong with the system. And, and it's very case by case driven because sometimes you may have a founder that is doing a great job and people want that person but then you have like succession issues and in this case right that his wife was supposed to be in the succession committee at the beginning she was going to be the successor and that's all in the in the small print but let's finish up uh, on this side what happened uh, you know the litigation outcome so the ipo failed you know people said this is it's a no-go and then uh, the board decides, and in fact, it was the bank. You, you write, I didn't know this, the, the inside story. It was JP Morgan. And you write that Mary Callahan in a, in a meeting says, you know, you, you should think about leaving. And then Jamie Dimon says, yeah, I think that's a good idea. You, you have never listened to anything. And then he talks to his you know, close uh, uh, people and the board decides they have a dinner with him in New York and, and they get angry with him and he leaves. Even in that, when he leaves, they still have him with three to one voting power, which I thought was crazy. They still have him as chairman, which I think is crazy. But then there is a buyout from SoftBank, right? And and that saved the company. But why don't we talk about the final litigation? And and, and there's been more news since. I think you, you still cover it in your book, that the, the latest payout. But let's talk about the end of the story uh, and sure. how Adam Newman leaves. So, I mean, it's it's an absolutely unbelievable story. And I'll just say... The backdrop, I mean, he, yeah, he's pushed out. As you said, he still has some smaller super voting shares. So he still has pow- more power than everybody else, even as he's pushed out as CEO. And they know they can't take the company public with him. Even he knows the company can't go public with him in power ever. And let me add one thing for listeners. The fact that he walks out is the argument that they give him is, look, if you walk out now, we don't have a battle, we can still save the company and you still be a billionaire, right? So mm-hmm. he's also thinking like, if I just walk out, I can still keep my shares. And it's an economic argument to 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 give him an out, right? So that's also an interesting side of the of why he walks out. Exactly. And they all use that, whether Jamie Dimon saying that mm-hmm. to him, the board members. So yeah, he's he's willing to go. He goes out with not too much of a fight. He, he agrees to go. But again, yeah, he has a super voting power. And it's, I mean, what I'd say, and I'll, I'll say what happens, but we know the cost of super voting control right now from him. And he leaves, but they need, SoftBank needs to put in a cash infusion. The company is about like would go would have gone bankrupt had they not put in billions of dollars more in capital. They didn't even have enough money to make it through the IPO is called off in September. They realized they don't even have enough money to make it through the end of the year, even to pay for layoffs. So the the absolutely wild thing to me is it's they need money, but SoftBank will only pay money if Adam gives up his super voting shares. And but had the company gone bankrupt, Adam would have been personally bankrupt. He has all these loans against 
that he's taken out all this money and spent it on eight houses and so many other things. So the company goes bankrupt. He's bankrupt. He's in a really tough financial position. Yet, as they're negotiating, SoftBank, just to get this done quickly, seems to be the real motivation, gives him an exit package that at the time, I think it was in October 2019, was valued at around $1.7 billion. And that includes they give him with a B with a B. And this company is like about to could have gone bankrupt. They put money in and this is to get him to give up his super voting shares. Part of it was they gave him a four year non-compete consulting contract for one hundred and eighty five million. So that's just a straight up payout. They decide that they help him renegotiate his loans. They take over the loans and then they're going to let him sell stocks. So altogether, it's including loans, stock, the potential for stock sales when they have the tender offer. Um, ultimately there's a lot of litigation between SoftBank and Adam Newman over, you know, whether, what he did, there's back and forth over how this all played out. Well, the SoftBank kind of reneged, had said, I think 3 billion, and then they said, we're only going to pay 1.5 billion. So there was kind of like a, after the pandemic, some, uh, terms negotiation, but still he walks out with how much? Uh, even I think ultimately, he renegotiates and he's it gets even higher than that number at the end of the day. I mean, they didn't pay him some of the um, money on the consulting contract, um, but then they gave him other payouts. I think it, he got uh, somewhere into the tune of like $2 billion altogether. I could be wow. a little off on that. But yeah, they were trying to renege. They, it goes, they go into battle and yeah, he still comes out even further ahead than this. And I remember the morning that this, they had been negotiating over like days and people joke that Adam Newman showed up at those board meetings uh, as he's negotiating his, uh, trying to save the company and his compensation contract. But I remember the morning they had been up all night. Someone calls me to tell me what happens. And this person says, uh, one of the people in the meeting, it says people are going to be absolutely horrified these are these are the numbers they, they got this cash infusion from softbank but like the, when people hear what happened to adam newman especially i mean the backdrop to that is now there are going to be thousands of layoffs and there were and um you know all these people thought they were going to cash in in the yeah, idea all the, all the common shareholders mm-hmm. get wiped out right early investors get wiped out and and you have the founder who, who walks out with two billion dollars i mean it's unbelievable and and what where is he now what what what's what what's what is he up to so he is now back in the united states he went to israel for a while they, they kind of stayed there longer than expected because of the pandemic He's back and he's selling houses. He bought another $40 million house in Miami. Um, right. And it seems like he's just very much kind of plotting his next act. It's, we, we hear all the time of different things he's mm-hmm. talking about. He's investing in a lot of, a lot of startups. Um, the one, one thing someone close to him said uh, is like, it's kind of unimaginable. He's not going to have enough another big act yeah i mean i think so right like travis i mean i mean he's got enough money and and you know i think he he may resurface at some point uh knowing the character but what a book i mean what a read i I, I really recommend it uh let's go through the final part of our uh, rapid fire questions to know you a little better and I'm excited about this because you're the first journalist I have, and and you being a, an, an author, uh, I think this is got more importance. What are the one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Oh my goodness. Um, okay, there's uh, I when I was younger, there was a book, uh, and I still think of it often. It's called The Bridge of San Luis Rey by Thornton Wilder, mm-hmm. and it's about this bridge that falls. Uh, that everyone uses every day. And this author tries to understand the meaning of life by understanding the nine people, I think it was, who were killed that day suddenly. When, and it's just this beautiful story on life and death and the meaning of life. And, you know, and since I remember reading it in high school and, you know, then came 9-11 and, and we've just seen so many unimaginable tragedies that make it almost impossible to, I mean, it's like, what do you do when you step away from something mm-hmm. like that? Um, it's so hard. And I just thought it was just a beautiful way of sort of reckoning with, um, you know, religion, faith, just, it, it makes you really think, and it was just a, a beautiful way to parse this. And it's something I just keep on um, 
coming back to. Uh, and I, and I'll, I will add all these in the show notes so people can access them. Amazing. Um, that's great. The second one, I would just say in terms of um, broader, like a nonfiction, I'd so just say one I've read pretty recently that I thought was so incredibly haunting and so beautiful was Say Nothing. It's about the troubles in Ireland. It's by a New Yorker oh. writer, Patrick Radden Keith. Yes. I think it's one of the greatest nonfiction books I've ever read. And it really, I have it, but I haven't read. <laughs> oh, I, I highly recommend it. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just, the, it's such an, the era, the fighting between uh, Ireland and Northern Ireland. It's, it's so dark. And it's one of these times that, I mean, there's, there are no heroes. It's, it's, it's a very sad story, but I feel like the way he handles all the material and really humanizes the struggle, even being of Irish descent and always trying to kind of make sense of it. And there's just been so much, murder and bloodshed and mm-hmm. um just such such tough times on both sides but just having a way into that i think it's just an, a nearly impossible task as a writer to navigate that and it's just done so beautifully it sheds so much light it does i mean it's really sad when you come out of it but it's it's just written um in an incredible way um the third one I will just say that was a uh, very just in terms of um, something I really looked at very closely as I was writing this book again was Bad Blood. I mean, it was oh, just the yeah. story of Theranos. Uh, my former colleague John Kerry Rue wrote it. You know, followed his reporting so closely at the time, and every story you know is crazier than the next. But then to go and read the book, I knew everything that was going to happen in the book, and I remember on more than one occasion, missing my subway stop reading it. So I thought the fact that he was able to like make a story that you, you know, the outcome, like just, it was, I mean, it's a crazy story, but it read like a thriller. And, um, I just, I felt like I, I came back to that a few times while writing it just, just, understand pacing and storytelling. I thought he did such a great job. You know, I I have to say that I felt the same with your book. I I read both and and I knew both stories and I followed these, you know, governance stories very closely. And and you still learn so much from the book. And it does, it's a very quick read and you uncover even more stuff. Like I was like, wow, like I can't believe this. And it is quite incredible that the difference of maybe writing a book than reporting on how much more information you, you get out there. Um, that's, it's great to hear that. And I mean, it was, that was one of the things as we were reporting, I mean, it was, I really enjoyed, uh, I mean, my co-author is great. It was, I thought it was very fun to be able to collaborate with someone, but I mean, we felt like we were calling each other every day, sometimes multiple times a day <laughs> saying like, you will never believe what I just heard. Sounds fun. Sounds fun. <laughs> yeah. Um, Okay. Uh, who were your mentors and what did you learn from them? Um, oh my goodness. Um, I've had so many, I mean, one of the things I was, someone, I, just in terms of journalism, Mm -hmm. one of the things I've, I heard someone say recently and it really, um, it made so much sense to me is that, you know, you always are told to look for mentors and I've, and I've had them and I've been so incredibly grateful every step of the way of like, you know, people who are above you, who've done what you've done before your, your bosses and other like kind of leading lights. But someone's like, you should know when you start out your career, your mentors are going to be your friends that you meet along the way too. It's like these people that you're in the trenches with, you, you form these friendships over time at like, during just some of the insanity that you go through the good and bad times. And then they go on and do different things, but you forge such tight bonds that these kind of can be the people that you go to over time. So, I mean, I'll just say like, I mean, friends from many jobs, I just find myself calling um, and asking questions, whether it's on so many different fronts. So I I think that's just like a piece of advice for everyone in every field that it's, Mm -hmm. yes, it's great to have mentors of people who have, gone there before but it's interesting to really think of your peers Peers. can be your lifelong mentors okay what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love (laughs) (laughs) um some like i guess one one thing i quite enjoy doing is i have a i have a seven and 11 year old Mm -hmm. so we i love watching like bad tv with them (laughs) they were like 
There's a show. It gives you an excuse, right? It's like, hey. an excuse. There's a show from the 90s called Hey Jude. It was like about these kids on a Jude ranch on Nickelodeon. And I've gotten my daughters into it. I don't think anyone's probably watched it since the 90s. But it's really fun to watch some bad, great TV with them. They get a huge kick out of it. So do I. Love it. Uh, And finally, which living person do you most admire? Okay, this is like with uh, politics aside, but I Jimmy Carter is just such a like unbelievably inspiring person. I mean, whatever you think of his presidency, what he's done in his lifetime since then. I mean, when you just think of reinvention and just kindness and like putting so many like good, wonderful things out there into the world between Habitat for Humanity what that does, what that does for people on every side of it. And just so many of his other initiative, it's just so beautiful to watch and just going back and teaching like Sunday school, like on a, on very big and very small levels. I think just mm-hmm. how he's lived his life, how his wife lived his life and sort of, I mean, we've now seen more presidents have this um, a lot of time after they've um, been out of office and pursue things, but his just, his just is, it, it's very sort of like beautiful to life, uh, beautiful to look at what he's sort of woven together and created and what he's still doing at his age right now. No, I, I love it. I think it's great. Um, Maureen, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to me, to discuss your book, uh, and also to dig into the governance issues that I think bring a lot of lessons to boards and people who are in the startup community and you know, maybe this is a story, an excess story where not many companies are going to get there. And, you know, when I talk to founders and startups here, they don't relate so much because it's such an outlandish case of somebody getting billions of dollars and the typical entrepreneur doesn't get there, right? Mm -hmm. But it, it it is a great story in terms of Wow, uh, as 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 we said, gatekeepers and people just like putting money at all levels. This is not only Silicon Valley, right? This is like the whole investment scope. And you even write about him meeting with prime ministers, you know, Modi in India, and and you know he had a uh, meetings in in Europe and and politics, and and it it just you you wove all the ecosystem of tech, but also of investment and politics and media and celebrities. I mean, how many celebrities are involved in this? I mean, it is an incredible So many. Story. The movie, when is it coming? <laughs> um, we, we, we actually, someone bought the rights to our book, but um, they were separately, there's another initiative taking place that is happening, not mm-hmm. related to our book, but it's sort of uh, spinning off one of the podcasts. And mm-hmm. Jared Leto and Anne Hathaway are playing... Wow. Um, Adam and Rebecca Newman. So it's, it, they're filming it right now. <laughs> I don't, I think he's like, maybe not quite his height, but he's quite okay. tall. Okay. So I'm okay. um, looking forward to watching it. It's not, it's it sort of, they started filming and writing before our book came out. So it'll be interesting. Looking forward to seeing it. Okay. Maureen, thank you very much. And I'll talk to you soon then. Great. Thank you so much for having me. All right. Bye. Bye. Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.